Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Okay, so really this conversation is going to be about how to transmute or sublimate difficult emotions into uh, moments of beauty, grandeur, and meaning. And to come upon this technique requires a certain um, grounding in a particular orientation to life. And that worldview or orientation comes from Kashmiri Shaivism, a 9th century philosophy um, that codifies and systematizes the beautiful tantric movement that preceded it. So we're going to talk a little bit about the tantric orientation to spiritual practice and how that orientation meets its summation or consummation in the work of Abhinava Gupta, a great 9th century polymath, uh, poet and uh, spiritual genius, tantric master. Okay, that's where we're going. Before we do that, though, um, a few disclaimers. The first is remember always in our lectures, something is only true if it is true for you. We are not at all interested in dogma or concepts or belief structures. After all, the master Jesus once said, uh, man does not live by bread alone. Well, neither does she live by concepts alone. While certain ideas might make you feel better about yourself, it might help you get some sleep uh, tonight. They don't last. All concepts and belief structures, that is, all clinging to things in the mind, um, don't quite do it for us. You know, so a concept alone will never give us lasting um, uh, peace, lasting fulfillment. And after a while, when we realize this, we can start to become pretty desperate and pretty frightened of any other concepts that challenge pet ideas that we cling on to for dear life. So the disclaimer is we're not interested in filling your head with any new belief systems or concepts. The only valuable concept is a concept that is able to point beyond itself to a reality or an experience that you can verify firsthand. You know, so at best, these concepts must not be the ends. They must be the means. They must be the way by which you go towards your ultimate fulfillment. They are not your fulfillment. There's a very big difference between the concept, all things are shakti, and actually knowing that, actually relating to the world as all things are shakti, you know. So let's make that distinction. The map is not the territory. Um, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon, as the Buddha himself said, but there is still value to fingers, yes? <laughs> so you might say, look, the map's not the territory. The finger is not the moon. So chop off all the fingers, you know, burn all the maps. And yes, in a way that might be valuable for some, you know, some people are lost in the fingers and the map maps, then maybe it's good. Uh, but for most of us, it is helpful to have roadmaps, you know. Know though that they only point the way, they themselves are not the way. So that's the first disclaimer. Uh, along those lines, should you feel like anything we're speaking about today doesn't quite sound true, meaning if it doesn't quite check out in your own understanding or experience of the world, just drop it in the chat and be like, I'm not really sure about that last thing you said. 
Or what about this contrary idea? And we'll engage in a dialectic. Okay. The second thing, um, disclaimer before we start today, is that there are broadly speaking... Oh, yes, Song, absolutely. Don't worry, not at all. Um, there are broadly speaking three approaches to enlightenment that you find in spiritual traditions all around the world. Or I should say there are three approaches to enlightenment that you find in all cultures and all traditions, whether they be spiritual or not. And so this is important because this means there is no one way um, that will exclusively get you to a place of fulfillment, meaning, and maybe something you might, you might call it salvation, enlightenment, nirvana. There is no one way that can get you to that place. There are, in fact, at least three approaches. So one particular approach that is unique to Tantra is the integral approach. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before I introduce you to that orientation, I just want to show you the two others. You know, so the first orientation is not a spiritual orientation. Um, it's in fact a materialist orientation. And it's what the Indic philosopher George Furstein might call a horizontal approach. So a horizontal approach is when we interact with life on reductionist and materialist terms. We reject the existence of any transcendental realm and we assume that consciousness is a byproduct of biology. So consciousness or awareness is an emergent property from some mysterious chemical synaptic reaction in the brain. Uh, having concluded this, we might conclude that the meaning of life is to maximize pleasure or um, maximize virtue on some secular humanitarian level. So this is what we might call the materialist, atheistic, or charvaka approach. We discussed it two weeks ago, up to about three classes ago, I think. Now, charvaka is one of the oldest schools of atheism in South Asian philosophy. It's an Indian school of philosophy. And the horizontal approach um, gives you this orientation. It says, don't worry about any transcendental realm. No need to practice any spiritual things. Just live in the world. Be of the world. Engage in the marketplace. You know, um, search for pleasure. Kama, we call it. Uh, search for material accomplishment and fame and name. Artha, we call it. Accomplishment. So these are valuable things to acquire in life. Kama and Artha. Usually, the Indian spiritual traditions say there are two other goals to which you will eventually want to aspire. But in the beginning, it might be enough for you to just live for Kama and Artha. So a person who lives in this way, the term we give to these people in this tradition is Samsarin. Samsarin might translate to worldling. You know, I kind of like that uh, first in translation, worldling. Now, Samsara... Um, is a very difficult word to translate. It basically means going around and around in circles. So it's a term that existed long before the Buddha, but it becomes popularized in the Buddhist teachings. Samsara is this world, um, and you will notice something very striking about this world. Patterns seem to be repeating themselves cyclically. You know, you might have entered a new relationship and in the beginning it was like, I'm falling in love, this is so awesome, puppies and chocolate and sunshine. In the middle of the relationship, it gets a little bit difficult. You know, there's a negotiation of personalities. You're no longer the person I fell in love with, you're changing. And I'm going to pout until you revert back to the person I thought you were, you know. And there's all this struggle and then there's perhaps the eventual breakup after a period of time. 
you know, some months go by and you enter a new relationship and you realize after a while that the same pattern is reasserting itself. You know, um, the same fights are coming up, the same hangups, the same reasons for parting ways. Now, perhaps you don't part ways and part ways and you stay in the relationship. It's a marriage, maybe. And it's going on for some time. You might realize a cyclical nature in the fights and the resolutions. You know, yeah, samsara and samskaras are two speaking, but they're very closely related. And I'll explain the relationship in a little bit. Good question, Caleb. Now, samsara is the world wherein the dog chases its own tail. So you might already become, you might already be aware of some of your own patterns that just seem to keep repeating themselves. One pattern the Buddha pointed out was that pain always follows pleasure and pleasure almost always follows pain. One doesn't appear without its necessary evolution into the other. You know, so any pleasure you might enjoy today um, will turn into pain when you lose what you have or when it no longer delights you in the way it used to delight you. You know, so you will change or the object of your desire will change and then pain arises. But wait, 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 that's not so bad. Pain's good, right? I mean, pain is what gives us pleasure. So when we feel pain today, that's what allows us to appreciate pleasure tomorrow. Okay, that's all well and good up to a point. Most people start to wake up to the conundrum. Pain always gives pleasure and pleasure always gives pain. Suddenly you start to realize that while you're biting the chocolate, in that pleasurable experience, the seeds of pain are already planted. You know, you, your relationship to pleasure changes. Your relationship to pain changes. Suddenly you start to become incredibly tired of this repetitive pain-pleasure roller coaster. You know, you realize happiness always has its opposite in sorrow and sorrow always has its opposite in happiness. Most people are happy to chase the tail, you know? They're happy to flip from happiness to sorrow, from sorrow to happiness. And when they get to the end of their life, they'll look back and they say, okay, these maybe few experiences were what made it all worthwhile, you know? Now, if you go to the old folks' homes and you spend some time with old people, the reality is often not that. People usually regret the ways they've lived their lives and they usually find a great dearth of meaning at the end of their lives. They wonder what it was all for, what it was all worth. All the pains and pleasures that seemed to mean so much to them in their 20s meant nothing in their 50s. And the pains and pleasures and things they took to be so important in their 50s no longer mattered at all when they were 80 in the old folks' home, forgotten by their children. You know, that's a tragic reality. Um, but life goes by like a dream. Now, some people are very content with this dream, and that's fine. We call this uh, the orientation of the samsarin or the worldling. Even this is a beautiful orientation because eventually it is only through repetitively experiencing the cycle of pain and pleasure, happiness and sorrow, birth and rebirth, if we want to be a little bit more macrocosmic about it. It is only through experiencing this um cycle that we come to realize we're trapped in a wheel at all you know we're like the hamster running and then there starts to you know flower in us the interest or at least the question is there something more to this than pleasure pain happiness sorrow you know is there more to life than the matrix or the hamster wheel choose your metaphor <laughs> So when the samsarin, meaning when the worldling, wakes up to the Buddha's insight, 
And the Buddha's insight is birth is suffering, death is suffering, rebirth is suffering, all of life is suffering. Uh, seems very grim, but it's actually a very optimistic claim. You know, the Buddha is saying most of your life is defined by suffering if you only had the insight to see it. This is a profound insight. The Buddhists call it divine dispassion. It's a beautiful world weariness, a Weltschmerz, you know, the German word, world weariness or a jadedness or a sort of, ah, oh, this is not enough for me-ness um, that can only come through being a worldling. You know, even in the best case, even if you're living for charity or humanitarian ideals, you might still, you know, feel an itch inside of what is it all worth? You know, remember that, that quote, um, you can't get all the starfish off the beach and the guy throws the one starfish and he says, well, for this one starfish, it meant the world of difference. Even for that person, after a while, they might start to ask, you know, what the purpose of their life is. It often happens, you know, to great philanthropists at the end of their life, they wonder if they really did as much as they thought that they did. Anyway, thanks to this existence, there can be this insight, the insight of the Buddha, which is birth is suffering, life is suffering, death is suffering, but there is a way out of suffering. You know, there is a way. Jesus calls it the narrow gate. You know, there's a way to sneak out, uh, as it were, of the prison house of samsara. The Buddha found it. You know, he found a door that was unguarded by a prison guard and he walked through it, verified it for himself and said to everyone in his community that you can verify this for yourself also. Famously, he said, be a lamp unto thyself. You know, seek on your own terms and you can find what I too have found. And what he found, he refused to define. He didn't want to give you a concept. So he called it nirvana. Now, this is the second approach and what George Furstein calls the verticalist approach. So I like this languaging, you know, horizontal approach when you live in the world as a worldling. The verticalist approach, so you can think of it as this is the world, it's horizontal. The verticalist approach is the desire to escape the world, to no longer be in samsara. So most Indian spirituality actually proposes a verticalist approach. Um, and so if you maybe look at some of the oh, here we are. sorry about that mate um, so if you look at some of the Indian schools of philosophy let's take for instance yoga yoga comes from the Sankhya school of philosophy Sankhya um, pr proposes that the world is divided into two um, realities. One is known as Prakriti, which translates to something like flux or creatrix. You can call Prakriti samsara. So Prakriti is this wheel of birth and death, this pleasure and pain cycle. Um, but Prakriti is opposed by another reality known as Purusha, this transcendental pure spirit reality. The Christians also have the same framework. It's Babylon or the world, literally, and it's the kingdom of heaven you know, or the kingdom. So Paul, the apostle famously said the kingdom of heaven is within. So that's where you locate it. It's somewhere in here, but it's still categorically different from the world around us. Um, and it's so categorically different um, that wisdom with one is foolishness with the other. You see, so this is the Christian tradition saying these two worlds cannot be compared because what works in one doesn't work in the other. Um, the Buddha would make the same statement. He would say this world is suffering 
um, don't play by its rules. You know, it would only cause more suffering. So most of these dualistic traditions that presuppose a transcendental reality encourage you to leave the world behind. And we had a whole class on renunciation and the implications of renunciation. But in brief, let me just say that these philosophies tell you that no joy can come of the world. As long as you live in the world, suffering is inevitable. So we'll give you a technique. For Patanjali, it was Ashtanga Yoga, the Eightfold Path. Oh, sorry, eight, eight limbs of yoga. For the Buddha, it was the eightfold path. Um, but these are ways to escape the world, you know. Now, this isn't just true for dualistic philosophies. Non-dualistic philosophies like Advaita Vedanta also see the world as an illusion. So they don't see the world as even existing on any level. You know, you look out and you think there's solid matter. Uh, but there isn't. It's all empty space, as quantum mechanics is showing us more and more today. You know, you look out and you see a world of uh, people and um, different forms and different countries and there are political issues and things are on the news. And you look out and this is the world that you're confronted with. Advaita Vedanta or non-dual Vedanta makes the very radical claim that that world isn't even there to begin with. It's entirely illusory, and it's an error of cognition. The world appears to be real insofar as you do not connect with the actual real thing, which is Brahman or the Tao or the conscious principle that alone is real. This conscious principle, Brahman, gives birth, as it were, to an illusory matrix known as Maya. So the goal of the Advaitin, meaning the goal of the non-dualist in the classical sense, is to realize this as quickly as possible. They realize it through intense meditation, renunciation, um, and insight. So thanks to their meditation, and thanks to their renunciation, they're able to align themselves with this insight. Uh, to put it briefly, Brahma Jnana Jagat Mitya. When the knowledge of yourself or Brahman is gained, the world is shown to be illusory. That's what the slogan translates to. Brahma Jnana Jagat Mitya. So there are some scriptures, you know, that depict the world in some pretty, uh, radically cold ways. You know, the, the world is compared to a cobra, uh, noxious with poison. The world is compared to a great bully or torturer, um, and she lives to deceive you and punish you. <laughs> so Samkhya, Yoga, Advaita Vedanta, they're all verticalist approaches in that they tell you to jettison yourself out of the world, to leave the world behind. The Buddha knew that this vertical approach was virtually impossible insofar as you lived in the marketplace. If you were going to work every day, if you started a family, you know, you're going to be in the world. You're going to start to have attachments to your family members. You're going to start to crave promotions at work. So it's virtually impossible to take a verticalist approach if you decide to have a family, to live in the world, to be in the marketplace and to work a job. So the Buddha, much like George Lucas's Jedi Order, created a community apart from society. You know, it was a community that the Buddha called the Sangha or the fellowship. And everyone in the Sangha were gathered together on the two pillars of renunciation and service or renunciation and meditation. So if you join the Sangha, you know, typically you would shave your head. 
You would give up all your titles, your land, your possessions. Uh, you would wear new clothes. You'd have maybe two sets of clothes. That's it. You know, two robes. Uh, the color is quite fancy, so don't worry. It's quite a stylish robe, especially if you're up in the Vajrayana Buddhist monasteries. Ooh, you'll be looking pretty fly. You know, very ornate. But you still have to wear an outfit, um, and you often have to change your name. So you are no longer, you know, Nish such and such. You become Lama Angarika Govinda. Um, you know, and they move you away into this monastery, often way up on the summit of a misty mountain. And there you spend your time meditating, doing service for your fellow monks, translating and commenting on ancient scriptures. Basically, you commit yourself full time to a spiritual life. That's a verticalist approach par excellence. You know, the Swami order, the world's oldest monk order, um, will have you do the same thing. You shave your head, you change your name to Swami such and such. By the way, the word Swami, Sva means self. Swami is one who has mastered herself. You know, so Swami Sachin Ananda is one who has mastered himself through the grace of that being consciousness bliss. You know, so you can see, you take a new name. This is exactly what Dominican and Franciscan uh, monks do. You know, so all around the world, the verticalist approach is defined by retreating from the world and maybe setting up in a spiritual community, taking a new name and live, living full time as a spiritual aspirant. Now, all verticalist approach, uh, all verticalist approaches presuppose that the world is a thing to be avoided and it's a hindrance. You know, um, wisdom with God is foolishness with the world. The world is in your way, so to speak. And as long as you hold on to the world, you're going to suffer. So there's a story. Uh, a farmer had a grove of banana trees. And every day, a monkey would come to take his bananas. One day, the farmer decided to outsmart the monkey. So he took all the bananas in his orchid and he put it in a jar. But the jar was such that the nozzle was so small that if the monkey grabbed the bananas, it wouldn't be able to take its hand out of the jar. So the farmer was very smug about this. You know, he put his jar out and he waited. Lo and behold, the monkey came, put his hand in the jar and grabbed a fistful of banana, you know, and he tried to pull it out, but he couldn't. And now the farmer jumps out from behind the tree and he says, I caught you, you scallywag. And he starts to beat the monkey incessantly. A very dramatic story. Now the monkey's holding the banana and yowling like, ah, wow, wow. All the monkey has to do is release the bananas. And then it can pull its hand out and it's free. You know? Um, and the joke is, when the monkey releases the banana, the monkey becomes a monk. You know? <laughs> So the joke is the A, 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 the monkey's being beaten. That A, that E-Y, that's the monkey. You can drop all the pain when you decide to drop the world. You know, so these verticalist traditions see the world as the farmer beating you, but they see it as your fault. You're clinging. <laughs> so just let go. Of course, this is not so easy. It's more involved than just deciding you're going to want to let go, you start to realize that the hand has a mind of its own. It grasps and clings and pushes away despite yourself. You convince yourself that you shouldn't desire or fear things, and yet you do. <laughs> yet you find, despite yourself, you're chasing after things you know will not satisfy you, and you're running away from things you know won't really hurt you. You know that getting a B plus and not an A minus isn't the end of the world. Yet, there is still a pang in your heart when that report card shows up. 
you know, you know the rave and the molly um, will expire tomorrow, yet there is a craving still for that experience. So the thing is, verticalist approaches are very sympathetic to the human predicament. Most South Asian schools do not have a guilt narrative. You know, there's no such concept as sin. Um, and even the Greek New Testament, that word sin meant to miss the mark. You know, it was to miss the point of life. So the word sin has the same connotation as ignorance, the word avidya. So the idea is that the verticalist approach wants you not to be guilty, not to punish yourself for being in the world, but just to calmly and compassionately realize your error, your mistake. You know, you, you just took to the world to be more real than it is. You took yourself to be this body-mind personality, when in fact, the reality is much deeper, much more profound, and much more fulfilling. So come live with us in the monastery, and we'll give you a few techniques to control lust, to control greed. Some of these techniques we've discussed together at length last week and the week before the last. You know, so you've probably noticed uh, the past few lectures have been themed around renunciation. You know, so I've been giving you the techniques from yoga and Buddhism to make renunciation of the sex impulse, of the greed impulse, to make that renunciation a lived reality in your life because it can be done. Now, before I get into Tantra and the integral approach, let me give you a reason to believe that these spiritual ideals can be accomplished by anybody anywhere, lest you feel like giving up lust and greed seems too lofty and ideal, you know? So just dig this. Some of you have been practicing Hatha Yoga for a very long time. Some of you just started practicing Hatha Yoga. I know Song's been doing it since the 90s with some of the greatest yoga teachers in California. There's a lot of season and uh, Roxanne is with Bikram and okay. <laughs> so a lot of you have been practicing a lot of yoga, you know? Now, the first day you came to a postural yoga class, um, the teacher might have had you do Vrikshasan, tree pose. Um, and you barely could do it. You couldn't get the foot above the knee. You couldn't get the foot to stay on the thigh. You were wobbling all over the place and you perhaps had to do it up against a wall. But very soon, a week later, you know, you took three yoga classes after that and suddenly you're sipping coffee in Vrikshasan, having breakfast in tree pose. You should see Ryan, you know, now he can do warrior three, all sorts of things. He's only been doing yoga four weeks. Now he tomorrow he's going to stand on his head. He doesn't know this, but in tomorrow's private, he's going to be upside down. And it's all possible, uh, but in the beginning, it didn't seem like it. It seemed very far-fetched. Now, after you woke up the next day from practicing yoga, you might have noticed something. You were suddenly aware of muscles in your body that you didn't even know existed. You know, like now you feel your hamstrings. <laughs> Ryan nods, with, nods very gravely. Okay, the idea here is, a new dimension has been added to your life. It's called the dimension of hamstringness. Before hamstringness didn't exist, now it does. Now hamstrings are a part of your lived reality. So it shouldn't sound so far-fetched then to think that with a certain amount of practice, new dimensions will be added onto your life that will give you superb control of your body and mind. A week ago, you couldn't control your... Uh, your body, and now you can, in a way. So a few years later, you'll be able to control the sex impulse, the greed impulse. You'll be able to control how much sleep you need, how much food you need. All the things that you thought were autonomic processes, breathing, 
heart rate, hunger, um, sex drive, all these things that you thought just happened to you, after some practice, you realize, no, they can be harnessed. They can be redirected. They can be safely, gently, and even pleasurably redirected. You know, so your desire for chocolate cake will fall away when you taste the even more fulfilling bliss of the causal body state. Call it that if you will. So the idea now is basically this. After a certain amount of meditation, you taste a dimension of being that is right now already in you. It's with you right now. It's as close to you as this next inhale. Take it. It's right there. It is inside of, around, and um, besides all breaths, all experiences of life. Now, it's just that dimension of life, like the hamstrings, is not yet an immediate reality to you. You know, and Morgan asks, uh, limited by the body, the needs of the food body, yogis would would tell you different. You know, there are yogis who haven't eaten in in 20, 30 years. And you can verify this. There's a lot of... um, journalism out there about great yogis who don't eat anything. They watch Sai Baba very closely and he only had half of a chapati every couple of weeks, you know. Um, and that's, you, you know how to do this. When you're really busy at work, you know how to not be hungry. You can run on adrenaline. Uh, usually, usually you have to pay for it later. But what if I gave you better control of your ghrelin hormone, you know, the hormone that causes you to be hungry? I can teach you how to salivate and not salivate. Some of you already know how to do that. In meditation, you can stimulate your salivation. That's a big, what do you call it? Um, amylase secretion. You can do all of this. You can work with the hormones in the body. Um, and this can free you from the limitations of the body. Uh, many verticalist approach call this the divya deha, meaning the god body. Or the uh, vajra deha, the lightning body. You know? <laughs> So, okay, these are all promises of the verticalist path. They recognize that you um, have certain dispositions. You crave certain things. You fear other things. Have no um, fear. We're going to give you techniques. And you're going to spend all of your time in the monastery practicing them. And you can imagine, after about an hour of yoga a week, you can stand on your head after a year. Um, What do you think you'll be able to do with 10 hours of practice in 10 years? No, walk on water. It's not uh, too far-fetched to believe that. And if you visit some of these monasteries and you spend some time at a Kumbha Mela, you know, in India, it's a big festival known as the Kumbha Mela, you'll see a lot of charlatans, no doubt, but you will also see some things that will radically change your ideas about what you think the body can or cannot do. In fact, you don't even have to go so far. You can just check out a David Blaine or Chris Angel video or whatever, what have you, you know. America is full of people who know how to do these things also. Now, the verticalist approach says this, you practice this and you leave the world behind. You see the world for what it is. It's an illusion. You no longer need to deal with it. It's not even there. It's not real. Okay, now I'm going to hip you to the third approach, my favorite, and perhaps the approach most suited for most of us here. It's a very difficult approach though. And this approach, they call it the way of the vira or the hero's approach, the path of the adept. Okay, here's the clincher. This approach is much harder than the verticalist approach. <laughs> I mean, you might think, okay, no, it's not. Um, but the Buddha had a point. 
the Buddha knew that if you just stayed in the world and you continued on with your life, you will just rationalize your way out of doing any real spiritual work. Most great masters like the Buddha and Ramana Maharshi. Oh, I'm happy Westerfer is here. He's going to help me today. Um, but yeah, the Buddha, uh, Ramana Maharshi, Ramakrishna, they all said um, living in the world is incredibly dangerous. And Westerfer, welcome. If you don't mind, can you share your Kali story in a little bit? If you feel comfortable doing it. Because I want to introduce Kali worship. And I think the best way to do that is through that story, Westerfer. Just in a little bit. Um, so yeah, just shoot me a chat if that's something you'd be open to doing. It's a very great story. You'll love it. Um, and if not, don't worry. Yeah. So the verticalist approach is supposedly easier because it takes you away from all the stimulants that might lead you astray, that might draw you back into cycles of craving, desire, and fear. Thank you, Wester. Thank you. Um, so the verticalist approach is the safer road. It's to protect you from continually being dragged back into the muck. Most of you have tried to live by spiritual ideals only to have fallen flat a million times. If you continue to practice today, it is because you are viras, nothing short of heroes and adepts. You have the tenacity to practice spirituality in the world, you know, um, and the verticalist teachers want to make it easier for you by showing you that the world is not worth your time, it's illusory, and you should renounce it. But now there is a new movement in India. You know, after centuries of verticalism, uh, after some of the horrific abuses that occur as a consequence of verticalist philosophy, such as the demonization of the body, the entrenchment of the caste system, all of that, um, because of some of that, there was a new kind of movement in India. And that movement was called Tantra. Tantra was probably a 5th century AD spiritual movement that doesn't originate from any one place. Uh, most scholars now can confirm that it's a pan-Indian movement, meaning it emerged spontaneously from all different parts of India. And that's because, as we discussed last week on Thursday, Tantra is the combination of the verticalist elite schools of Indian philosophy with the more grounded folk and shamanic schools of Indian spiritual practice. You know, so Tantra is the alchemical reaction when the shamanic folk roots of yoga meet the mainstream ritualized uh, elite roots of yoga, and they come together to create what many scholars called the integral approach. Okay, now this is the clincher for today's lecture. The integral approach can be summarized with this following equation. Now I'm going to give you the equation, and make no mistake, this insight was like spiritual dynamite um, in the Indian South Asian spiritual scene. You know, so this insight, this Two words and this equal sign will radically change Indian spirituality forever. So I'm about to give you now the singularity in all Indian spiritual thought. It is with great delight. Can I have a drum roll? I'm getting it. Here it is. With a lot of drama, this is the equation. Yeah, there it is. Okay, here we go. That's it. Samsara equals nirvana. It's, it's profound. And let me unpack it for you. Samsara equals Nirvana was famously articulated by Nagarjuna. He was a Buddhist tantric master, but Tantra isn't um, a Buddhist movement. It's a Shaivite movement. 
So Tantra emerged within Shaivism, which is the religion devoted to Shiva, the god Shiva. Um, and that will become important today. Oh, oh that, there goes that live stream. <laughs> um, but Tantra emerged within um, Shaivism, the religion of Shiva, and later spread to Buddhism. The Buddhist master Nagarjuna called it Samsara equals Nirvana. Now, other masters before him were making the same statement. What does this statement mean? It's very radical. The statement says that what you took to be samsara is actually nirvana. You're just looking at it the wrong way. In a way, the Advaitins say the same thing. They have this metaphor called the rope and the snake. In the darkness of ignorance, what is actually a rope you mistake to be a snake. So you are frightened of the world. You see it as a poisonous, scary thing. You can imagine you see a shape in the darkness and you think it to be a snake. What great terror will this cause you? You know, and most of, most of us live life like that. We look at the world and we're like, snake, I got to get the A. I need to climb the corporate ladder. Ah, feel your body. You know, it's so tense most of the time. It's so clenched. The jaw is clenched. The groin muscles are clenched. There's a great kind of fight or flight about most of our experience in life. And that comes from seeing the world as a snake. Now, when the dawn of uh, wisdom arises, you will see in that light, that beautiful light of the rising sun, that what you always thought to be a snake was in fact a rope. So the reality of the snake wasn't there at all. There was never a snake. There never will be a snake. You know, it was always a rope. Yes, um, yes, thank you so much, uh, Josh. So the thing is, Advaita Vedanta sees the rope as like, bah, whatever, it's a rope. You know, it's just lying on the floor. It's a piece of string lying on the floor. Who cares? You know, the Buddhist sees samsara as like, not worth your time. You know, uh, life is suffering. Anityam, anityam, sarva anityam. It's all changing, bro. And so it's all suffering. Dukkam, dukkam, sarvam, dukkam, you know. The Buddha wants you to leave the world. The Advaita Vedantins like Shankara wants you to leave the world. Nagarjuna, um, Abhinava Gupta, and all the great tantric masters are like, wait, 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 wait. Come back into the room. Let's look at this rope. Oh, hello. Claire, hello. <laughs> What's up, dear? I like your hat. Your hairband. So cool. Thanks. <laughs> There's the spider. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, welcome Claire. So the Nagarjuna and Tantric masters like that said, no, look at the rope. It might not be a useless piece of hemp on the floor. It actually is the very thing that you are looking for. It is that. So in the Heart Sutra, at the very end of the Buddha's career, and remember, the Buddha's teaching developed. He didn't have a singular teaching or a singular doctrine. It developed. And to the end of his career as a teacher, he has a famous text known as the Heart Sutra. And the opening line of the Heart Sutra is, Form is the formless, and the formless is the form. Okay, now this does something very radical for Indian philosophy. Remember, in the material approach, the horizontal approach, only form exists. 
In the verticalist approach, either form and formless exists as Prakriti and Purusha. One is obviously better than the other. You know, we obviously want the formless. Or in other non-dual verticalist approaches, the form doesn't even exist. But now the radical statement is the form and the formless both exist, but they're both aspects of one thing. So it's still non-duality. Only one thing exists. But when you see that thing a certain way, it's seen as a snake and it causes suffering. So you are looking at something that is to you samsara. But if you but change the way that you look at it, it will, the very same thing will appear to you as nirvana. You know, the blowing out of samsara. Um, of course, there are some linguistic ways in which the statement is so profound. Nirvana means blowing out. You know, it means the formlessness. It means emptying out. Samsara means fullness. It's got all this activity and drama. So to say that the drama is the blowing out of drama and that the blowing out of drama is the drama is, linguistically speaking, a beautiful paradox, an exquisite paradox, so to speak. Okay, now is the clincher of today's lecture. This orientation gives you the following teaching. And if you are able to internalize this teaching, it will radically change your relationship to pain, sadness, grief. Disclaimer, it's not going to take them away. In fact, why would you want that? A verticalist might be interested in taking away grief, but not the viras of Tantra. You will continue to experience great grief. That's inevitable. You live in the world. The Buddha's insight holds true. The Buddha is not wrong, you know. Um, the Buddha and Shankara are perfectly legit. Tantra doesn't deny that. So yeah, you're gonna suffer. You're gonna suffer a lot. You will suffer grief and emotional pain when you lose your loved ones. Make no mistake, you will lose them. Everybody you love will die. You know, that's the Buddha's insight. Don't make a mistake and think that they will live forever. You will die. Your body will decay before your very eyes. You will see your eyesight start to decay. You will see your bones start to ache. And you will witness this decay. You know, Westerfer is looking, he's like looking at, at me trying to watch the decay happening. You'll see it. Each breath is death, no, as the Buddhists call it. Now, um, the Buddha, Shankara points this out. Tantra says, we accept. But it doesn't have to be suffering. This grief, this pain, this uh, sickness, this old age, it doesn't have to be dis-ease because that suffering is not in the experience. It's in the way we relate to that experience. It's the framework in which we're having that experience that causes the suffering. So here's the teaching. And once you imbibe this teaching, it will change um, your relationship to suffering forever, not by taking the suffering away, but by turning the suffering into a beautiful, empowering, and my favorite way to say it, enlivening experience. You know, so here's the teaching. There is a conscious principle. Call it Brahman, call it the Tao, call it God, call it being. This conscious principle is in Tantra, or at least in Kashmiri Shaivism, called Shiva. She means uh, to lie down. She, the root Sanskrit word, she is from Shavasan, you know, corpse pose. So she means to lie down. Va means vastness. So she and va means the vast ground of all being, 
which is pure awareness. So Shiva is a conscious principle. This conscious principle is not without attributes. One of its attributes is blissfulness. So if you but uh, rest in your consciousness, you will feel a sweetness emanating from it. It's called ananda. It's not happiness. It's not pleasure. It's categorically different. It's the peace that passeth all understanding, to borrow again from St. Paul. How beautiful, you know? Paul is telling you, don't even try to to put this into a, a, a words. You're not going to get it. It's the peace that passeth all understanding. So this Shiva has this peace, Ananda Shakti, it's called. And from this feeling of peacefulness, it desires, known as Icha Shakti, pure will or urge, it desires to experience itself as the many. So the one singular awareness wants to experience itself as many. Uh, unity desires multiplicity. But the multiplicity isn't actually real um, in the absolute sense, only in the relative sense. So Shiva, out of a desire to experience herself in form, emanates this world into existence, this world that to you is seemingly diverse. But the very stuff of this world is Shiva herself. So Shiva has another name, and that name is Shakti. They're often seen as the male and female, masculine and feminine parts of div divinity, but they are co-joined, they are fused. They are the great hermaphrodite of the alchemical medieval European traditions. Shiva and Shakti are not different. Shiva is consciousness, and where there is consciousness, there is power. Shakti, the word Shakti in, in Sanskrit means power. Shakti is the creatrix or the flux or the samsara or the world, if you will. So everything that you see is Shakti. So who are you? You are a Jiva. Jiva meaning a personality. You are none other than Shiva Shakti herself. But in order for Shiva and Shakti to explore herself in you, she has to forget that she is the all. That's necessary. Um, as long as Nish is identified with all things, Nish can't really appreciate his Nishness. For a time, Nish has to be obsessed with himself. <laughs> Nish has to be a worldling. That's inevitable. And when Nish wakes up from the worldling delusion, he doesn't have to go straight up a verticalist path back to Shiva Shakti. Instead, Tantra says there's a far higher approach, and that approach is to recognize the imminent divinity. So recognize that the only reason Nish is here is so that Shiva Shakti can explore herself in a unique and particular way. That is Nishness. So Shiva Shakti is expressing herself as Nish. I suffer if I take myself to be Nish. I am not. Nish is in me. Nish is a particular vibratory expression as Roxanne is in me. And this me that I speak of is the Chid Akash, the sky of consciousness. Um, and that sky of consciousness is none other than Shiva. So I want you to notice, uh, you know, Vivekananda, he once went to Alameda, California. You know, he's traveling. He comes to California, New York, when he was coming to the U.S. And one of his disciples said, oh, Vivekananda, I'm so happy you're here in Alameda. He scoffed and he said, no, Alameda is in me. You know, think about it. When you close your eyes, New York disappears. When you go to sleep at night, 
all of the world vanishes. You retreat into the causal realm. You think that you are a body in the world, but in fact, the world is in your body and your body is in you, you the awareness. Now, here's how it radically reframes your uh, relationship to suffering. And we'll close here. I will need five more minutes. Sorry, we're going over. Um, here's what it will do. It will say, Shiva emanates this world into being as Shakti because Shiva and Shakti, while they are not different, they are two aspects of a function. Shiva is Prakasha, meaning the emanation or the outward movement of consciousness. Shakti is Vimarsha, which is the self-reflexive doubling back of awareness onto awareness. Shakti is all important. Shiva doesn't just want to be aware. I mean, that's what he is already. Shiva it desires something different. Shiva desires to be aware of that awareness itself. So Shiva desires a return movement. In order to have the return movement, you need a pivot. And that pivot is your jiva experience of life, your individual experience of life. Because you are in a body and because you experience the world on sensual terms, you are able to appreciate not just the experiences, but the very conscious awareness in which those experiences are vibrating. You know, thanks to the experiences, it draws attention to the field in which they vibrate. You know, so now the work of all tantric poets is to point you to that spaciousness that surrounds your life. Rumi was the best at this, in my opinion. No better words in the name of Tantra have flowed from any other lips but this, this, these pair of lips. And look at his poetry. The lover asks her lover, who do you love more, me or yourself? <laughs> the lover says, oh, my beloved, after loving you, what is left of myself to love? After all, if I hold up a ruby to a sunrise, is there still a ruby or is there not just a world of red? <laughs> and he would say, beyond all your concepts of right and wrong, there is a field. Meet me there. You know, uh, the Rumi poetry is all about spaciousness, emptiness. So you will notice in the tantric text, Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. You will notice in the Buddhist Tantric text, like the Heart Sutra, a great emphasis on void, on formlessness, on spaciousness. That's none other than what Claire might call heavy quietude, the palpable awareness itself. All your experiences point you to that. So what's the problem? The problem is when something happens to you, it first appears as a vibratory experience. Then you superimpose onto that experience a label. That label might be something like grief or pain. And then this third step is the clincher. You make a value judgment, usually in the form of a protest. I ought not to be experiencing this right now. In other words, you are waging war against you. There is a great cognitive dissonance. Every emotion that arose, arose as a romantic, almost sexual, um, intimate relationship between Shiva and Shakti. You know, it's Shiva making love to Shakti in a particular way. You're just cock blocking. I mean, that's really what the tradition would have you believe. You are just getting in the way of this consummation of uh, knower and the known, and more importantly, the knowing, and even more importantly, the space in which the knower, the known, and knowing all coexist. Yes, Caleb, take care. Take care, take care.
I didn't want to tell you how samsara and samskara are related, but uh, message me on Instagram and I'll send you some voice memos. Take care, Caleb. Now, here's what I would have you do. When an emotion arises, this is what the um, tradition asks you to do. Most meditative yoga practices, you use them like Xanax, no? I mean, a lot of pranayama, a lot of meditation, you utilize to numb these emotions. So when you feel this arising of grief and pain, you might go to the meditation cushion. But the reason you go there is to escape the pain. Is that not the case? I mean, for most of us, we first use our chocolate cake and then we use our pranayama. But we're using them to achieve the same ends. And this was the great insight in Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. Remember Siddhartha said, what I learned with the samanas, I could have learned at the bar with rice wine. You know, it's, it's not, not different. You're just running away from something. So Tantra says, okay, let's change the strategy. Now an emotion is arising. The first thing to notice is the experience of the emotion as a vibratory form. So experience it in the body. And that requires that you be in the senses. So Tantra uh, always points you to the sound of breath flowing in the nose, the tastes on your palate. So ask yourself, what does this emotion taste like? What does it smell like? Uh, where in my body am I feeling it? In a lot of trauma-informed therapy, they do this kind of grounding or body work. You know, so you, you start with that. Okay, this is the next part, crucial. Now you add an understanding, and the understanding is this. Oh, what I'm experiencing now is a vibratory event in awareness. I am the awareness, and this event is in me. I am not sad. There is a particular vibration vibrating in me right now. I understand this vibration to be none other than the literal body of Shakti herself. Make no mistake, it's not a metaphor. It's literally Shakti. That experience is literally her. So when you understand this to be Shakti, you understand it A, to be none other than yourself, but B, um, your loving consort. You know, this is your romance with yourself. So what do you do? Tantra says, do not, yes, wonderful Roxanne, do not suppress, do not put it away. You know, yoga wants you to suppress. Yoga says nirodaha. Suppress the chitta vrittis. Tantra says, do not suppress. Instead, offer the emotion as a offering to yourself. So only God can worship God. You as Shiva worship Shakti by means of Shakti. So when you experience an emotion, Tantra says, go and sit in front of your altar and give that emotion to Shakti, to Kali. You say, oh, you have come to me now in this form, O oh Devi. How beautiful you are. How intense. How immediate. I offer this emotion back to you, knowing it to be none other than your own body. Knowing that to be none other than my own body. Do you see? So step one, experience it in the body. And that will keep you from labeling and judging it. Step two, bring reverence into it. So make every emotion a sacred act of prayer. Uh, your altar should have flowers. Often sweet, fragrant wine would be placed on the altar. Your altar is filled with beautiful things. So when you sit before a beautiful statue, it's not that you actually believe that statue is God any more than everything else is God. It's just that being able to focus on beauty while you experience a sadness turns that sadness into a thing of beauty.
Suddenly, all your grief is no longer felt as this deadened, I'm stuckedness. It's felt rather as a sharp, riveting, enlivening experience. So I'm going to close today's class first with a Rumi poem and second, hopefully, if Westifer doesn't mind, with a story of ecstasy in great suffering. So Kali is the form that we give to all experiences and she's often very terrifying. Notice the depictions of Kali, especially the Bengali Kali, show her with black skin. Her tongue is sticking out like a rolling stone, uh, like a like a kiss uh, musician, you know. And she's got weapons, and she's like ah, and she's so terrifying. If you're a Christian mis- missionary, you've like wet yourself. It's horrifying, right? Now, that's only the case if you're seeing the world the way you are now. Ramakrishna Paramahansa, great devotee of Kali, said. Kali appears to you black because you're looking at her from very far away. Like when you look at the ocean, it appears to be a certain color from a far away place. But if you come close and you touch the water, what color is the ocean? It is colorless. Awareness is colorless. So Kali appears to you black and terrifying only because you are seeing her through your limited form. What does Kali do? She chops your head off. You know, she severs the ego, freeing you from your limited thought construct that you took to be your real self. And when she cuts your head off, you're able to appreciate her for the great liberator that she is. So all your suffering comes to you to show you that you're thinking of things or seeing things wrongly. You're maintaining a thought construct that is not aligned with the reality of your being. So once you align that thought construct, Kali is no longer black and terrifying. She is beneficent, she is beautiful, and she is your lover. You know, and hopefully Westifer will characterize this in his story. So I'm going to conclude with this Rumi poem. The purpose of emotion is to let a streaming beauty flow through you. Call it elixir. Call it spirit. Call it your original agreement with God. Opening up into that brings peace, stillness, and emptiness. Oh. Peace, peace, peace.